Hey, this is Liberty DeVito, and you're listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Sometimes, the best part about the holidays are the leftovers. Picking at that feast you just enjoyed the day before can taste better than when it was just cooked. And, as the 2021 holiday season wraps up, we're bringing you a second helping of Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. It's been an amazing year for us, and with all the great topics and interviews we've touched on, not everything made it into the episodes you heard so far. So, we're bringing you interview excerpts, extraneous conversations, and a few extra emails from listeners that didn't make it onto the show. There's plenty of gravy to go around, so sit back and unbutton your pants as we throw some turkey legs and mashed potatoes into the microwave with our first ever end of the year odds and ends episode. We made it. We made it. I hope we made it because we're recording this a few weeks in advance, but we made it to the end of 2021. It's wild to think that we're wrapping up our second calendar year. What a ride. There have been a whole bunch of jokes. Well, I guess it was mostly coming out in 2020, like, hey, it's the 20s again. You know, guys got to start dressing dapper, this and that. Let me tell you, 2021, I don't know what happened. I officially became an old man. Let me, let me tell you the three things I got into this year. Classic Universal horror movies. I got reacquainted with the Marx Brothers via uh, the Marx Brothers Council podcast, and I'm I'm wrapping up the year playing in the pit for a uh, for a production of Anything Goes, which got me listening to the old Benny Goodman uh, famous 1938 Carnegie Hall jazz concert, for which I was just showing Michael because I finally have some show and tell to do. I found this great book that just details that concert, you know, down to like. It goes through every song. It goes through the history. It has like this, the diagram of the microphones, everything. So as soon as I'm done editing the rest of these this year's episodes, <laughs> I think I get to sit down with the fireplace and a copy of the record and read this book. And that's going to be my Christmas present to me. Yeah, I could totally nerd out on that. And another thing I mentioned to Jack too, that I don't know if y'all out there have Disney Plus, but the new Beatles documentary, Get Back, is out now. And I had the good fortune to see it over the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. And I tell you, it's it's long. It's broken up into three parts. It's eight hours, roughly, total. But it is incredible. It is the essentially a month in the life of the Beatles. This was all filmed every single day, practically, in January 1969. Incredible film quality. And to see these guys writing these songs that have become some of the most classic songs of all time. It's incredible. And then also seeing them working up songs that the Beatles would never do something with. They would become like a Ringo song or a George Harrison song. And, uh, but just to watch these guys joke around, create, have fights. It's like some kind of monster. I was, in 1969. I was just about to say that. I was just about to make that comparison. <laughs> 
to the point where George quits the band for like five days. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because he wasn't getting his creative outlet in the Beatles because Paul and mm-hmm. John were running the show and Ringo was the quiet one kind of going with it. So I'm like, holy shit, this is Metallica. <laughs> you got James and Lars, John and Paul. Jason Newstead is George Harrison who couldn't get his creativity out. So he wanted to do his own thing. Right. And then you have Kirk Hammett, which was Ringo, who's just keeping the peace, trying to go with the flow. It's got to, you, you've got to be the first person to make that comparison. I mean, I wouldn't expect <laughs> anything less, but you got to be the first one. If I can connect it to Metallica, if there's a way I'll find it. And I'm not even going to cut that one out. I'll leave it in. <laughs> and if this episode, uh, you know, so far for the couple minutes we've been in seems pretty scattershot, I guess that's um, in theme. We're wrapping up what you know really became a blockbuster year for us, and we can't thank you all enough. And we'll get into that in a moment too. But the crux of this episode is some stuff that got left on the cutting room floor. Some uh, interviews, particularly when we were putting together that two-parter on Russell, we just heard so many great stories that we couldn't fit them in. So anything that didn't have to do with Russell got cut out of that episode. And so we're including that here. Had some great conversations with Jesse Javers about his own music. Some really cool information about Robert Johnson, legendary blues guitarist. And then Liberty, um, you know, in the middle of talking to Michael about Russell, would just, you know, spin off into these other anecdotes that, you know, it pained me to take the digital razor blade to them at the time. Then I was like, no, you know what? We'll, we'll use these again at the end of the year. You're getting ready for the holidays. If you're doing shopping, maybe you're snowed in. Who knows what's going on so far? You know, <laughs> just a, a couple last few tidbits, uh, extra highlights from 2021 uh, from our podcast. Yeah, I, I'm really glad we could, you know, put some of these together. We have a tendency to get a little long-winded sometimes when we initially record. And we're obviously trying, always trying to be respectful of our guests' time. But, you know, when we'll do an episode just us, we'll talk for two hours and whittle it down to 50 minutes. All these guys, Liberty, Russell, Richie, Jesse, all had such good stories. And, you know, I feel like I've known some of them forever. Some of them I have, but it was just a lot of fun, comfortable conversation. There was some fun stuff here. So I'm I'm really glad we kept it aside in a folder that we could put some of it out Mm -hmm. here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But before we get into those, let's dip into the mailbag. I tell you what, every one of these emails has such a unique story. That's what I love about this. Yeah. We all have the common thread of Billy Joel, but everyone's backstories are very different and their concert experiences, their memories of albums, all so many different stories. And it's so telling of, you know, how universal Billy's music is. Our first letter comes from Jason Skidmore. He writes... Good morning, guys. I'm a new listener and just picked up on your album openers episode. I was gifted Innocent Man back in the 80s. My dad had Piano Man on cassette. And then ABC broadcast The Russian Special, which is still ensconced on a home-recorded VHS, along with the WXYZ broadcast of Bowie's Glass Spider Tour. The Russia album is definitely deserving of inclusion as a studio-quality album, particularly for this episode. While Odoya in the video package is part of a larger immersion into the Russians as a people rather than as a monolith, that Odoya angry young man combo says, yes, we respect your culture, now hold my stoli. At 14, that was the first time I heard that song, and the frenetic opening blew my mind. 
The radio hits are not the best things he's written. You have to go to the albums to appreciate the variety and the personal nature of his songwriting. And that is my number one Billy opener. My other bone to pick with this list is the digs on Not Her Style. While true, the lyrical content may not be the most sophisticated, it made a good statement for a return to the band in a room thing that this band is best at. Innocent Man was his nostalgic album. Bridge was his, rather weak, attempted synth pop. Stormfront hits hard from that first song. That opener, Extremes, the title track, Shameless, they're all just balls to the wall. And then he loses me on the back half of side two. If you ask me, the better collection of songs would have been to never even write fire, or at the very least to follow the original intent of the song. Rap side one with Stormfront, excise side two, and release it as an EP. Anyway, as a lifelong Billy acolyte, I'm eager to dig into more of these episodes. And Jason's running to us from Dearborn, Michigan. And uh, the giveaway for me uh, was him talking about WXYZ ABC, which was uh, Channel 7, the affiliate in Detroit. I'm very familiar with that. I actually, funny enough, I played in a band with a guy who was a news anchor there. He did the evening news. He, this guy, Stephen oh, really? Clark. We had a country band that he fronted. So during the week, he was pretty much at the studio from mid-afternoon to after the 11 o'clock news. He couldn't get out, but we could come to him. And so we would set up in the B studio, like the studio they weren't using for the news. And in between like the 7 o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news, Mm -hmm. we would rehearse (laughs) at the TV station. So we'd load (laughs) in and set up while he's finishing the 7 o'clock news. And he'd come in take off his coat, you know, he'd be still in his tie, you know, the whole bit. And we'd sit down and rehearse and occasionally some of the other on-air talent would come wandering by and listen for a bit. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty regular occurrence. We would actually rehearse there at Channel 7. That's great. And no one ever knew. All those those, um, viewers at home didn't know that he was was rehearsing in the next room in between the broadcast. That's That's fantastic. (laughs) I like this. Jason throws down some interesting gauntlets here. I love the fact that he had uh, the Russian special and and the Bowie tour on the same VHS. That is like that is such an eighties nineties thing to have your own personal random VHS that you like. You'll always remember as Billy Joel and then David Bowie, yep. and that's like a relationship that only you you're gonna have with those with those videos. I recorded that same special as it aired also on Channel Seven, so I have a. Oh, yeah. a Similar recording of that somewhere tucked away on a VHS tape. So I like what he's got to say about the Odoya angry young man. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, but yeah, conceptually that is a, uh, that is a good point. So I'll take yeah. it. Similarly with that's not her style. He did. Yeah. You know, there were a couple songs on Stormfront that were really back to just being, you know, the band in the room kind of feel. I mean, I guess we're assuming so. I don't know if you've got any information on, what those sessions were like if, if, cause it wasn't Phil Ramone. So they may not have done it that way, but I guess it feels like that. At least that's not a style. Right. And, and I think that was the approach for a lot of the record to have it sound big and have it sound live. Mm-hmm. Even though there's a myriad of overdubs and whatnot throughout this album right. is a very guitar heavy album. Most of the guitars are by David Brown. Russell had already exited the band. Um, and a lot of the guitars were David Brown and also some by Mick Jones from foreigner who mm-hmm. produced the record. Yeah. And you could tell that Billy wanted to get more into a rock sound too, because 
he was talking with Eddie Van Halen to, to produce the album. Yeah. And Eddie wasn't available. They were probably working on for unlawful carnal knowledge. If my timeline mm-hmm. is correct, or um, it might've been, yeah, that was probably the one or what was the second record? Oh, you one, two, probably. Oh, you one, two. I can't imagine Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen producing a Billy Joel album. I mean, I guess you couldn't imagine Mick Jones from Foreigner doing it. Right. But all I'm imagining is, you know, Eddie Van Halen guitar now on like We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> or like I go to extremes. It just comes in like this flurry of finger tapping out of nowhere. Right. Because you know what's going to happen. You know, at some point that's going on the record. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to imagine. Um, so I think Mick Jones was a great choice because Mick does come from a guitar sensibility. So he was able to help push the guitars towards the front of these songs. And mm-hmm. a lot of the album was mixed by Jay Healy. I think he was the engineer and, and he mixed it. I don't have the credits in front of me. Um, but that record just, it is his biggest sounding album Yeah, by a mile. The guitars sound thick and big and those drums sound huge. They do. And you don't, yeah, you don't realize it until you, you sort of listen to it next to some other albums. I mean, at least I didn't cause that was the one I, I, you know, that was the one that like I came online for and my, you know, my parents had it on CD and they had the other stuff on cassette recorded from vinyl. So I think even as a kid, I sort of understood that it was a second generation copy mm-hmm. and whatever nascent sense of, of production I had when I was eight years old, I wasn't going to, you know, pick up on like, Oh, you know, this release doesn't have as much piano on it. Interesting. Like, you know, you're not going to think that way, but right. You know, looking back when you listen to it as an adult, especially when you're going through the albums, you're like, wow, this really does sound a lot different even from the bridge. You know, look what was dominating radio in the late eighties was a lot of guitar heavy bands. Now, granted it didn't have the, the heaviness of thrash metal by any means, (laughs) but you know, you had, but wait, 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 which, uh, which thrash metal band could you possibly be referring to right now? Uh, Exodus, come on. Clearly uh. Testament. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, but you know, those, you know, guitar forward and guitar heavy bands were all over rock radio. And, you know, along with the hair metal of the world, the eighties ushered in the mid eighties, especially big drum sounds, huge drum sounds into the eighties and nineties yeah. and Stormfront in 89 fits right in the middle of all that. So that really makes sense why that album sounded so big. And that wasn't part of Phil Ramone's style. You know, he came from the Paul Simons and the Frank Sinatra's of the world. So you were never going to get that kind of record with Phil Ramone. That's not his style. (laughs) I win. (laughs) All right. Well, Jason, thanks again for writing in. You've given us much to think about. I'm definitely thinking a lot about Stormfront as an EP. I don't know. I, I would I would put State of Grace on there though. I love State, I of, Grace. State of Grace. That's a standout to me. Yeah. Yeah. I could I could do without We Didn't Start the Fire. I could do without When in Rome. I could see And So It Goes not being on this record, just being somewhere else on its own. Musically, the and with the production, uh When in Rome kind of reminds me of like the Saturday Night Live opening. Yeah. With the you it's, know, the drums and the sax and like, kick in. I I, I suddenly yeah. in the back of my head here, it's Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Phil Hartman, rest his soul. <laughs> Starring Dana Carvey. Yeah, it's like either that or an episode like Perfect Strangers or something. <laughs> it's very, very like late 80s TV theme show. Right. Very NBC, if I will. If you Well, I guess Perfect Strangers was ABC. That's right. But whatever. <laughs> and this next one's from our friend Robert Niebel. 
Robert's written in a few times before, and it's always good to hear from him. He writes, Hi guys, I love your latest episode with Mike Del Judas. I just love how he talks. He's so down to earth and filled with positive energy. Just like you all, I look forward to Mike's upcoming album. Mike's songwriting is indeed top notch. Just go out there and look up the Mona Lisa video and one will see why Mike is first rate. What I love about Mike is that he will explain the secret to the Billy Joel band magic in terms that most of us can understand without getting too inside baseball. I met Mike back in 2015 after a Billy Joel show in Atlanta. It might have been the second time that Mike performed the Tush snippet in the middle of River of Dreams. I asked him about it that evening and he said he previously did it in Dallas, which of course received a very positive response there and of course in Atlanta. Here's a little sidebar to that Dallas show. TV, radio, podcast personality, Glenn Beck, walked out of the show. Why? Mr. Beck said that Billy wasn't playing enough hits and was bantering too much with his band. What show did that guy attend? I can say things about <laughs> Glenn Beck, but as Mama once said, if you have nothing nice to say, then don't say it at all. Two years after meeting Mike, I produced a feature on him for CNN's Airport Network, which I mentioned to you both in my last email. Last August, I was at the Fenway show. I confess that Billy's current band always takes it up a notch every time out. This was their first show after the COVID period, and they sound even better these days. Mike totally knocked it out of the park that evening, filling in for Andy Sashong. Keep up with the good work, guys. Best, Robert. Right, Robert, always great to hear from you. Great points about Mike. He does. He he does explain a lot of why it works and how without getting too technical, which, you know me, I love, I love uh, getting technical, but you have a good point that he does put it in very, you know, sort of, I guess, easy to understand terms. I'm not easy to understand, but uh, universal terms, let's say. Yeah, he certainly does do that. And I first started talking with Mike probably, I want to say eight years ago, probably 2012 is when I got hip to Big Shot and, you know, he and I would banter back and forth, nerd out about Billy on and off through Facebook and whatnot. And I tell you what, he's the same guy then that he is now that he's been in the Billy Joel band for eight years. Uh, he's just such a genuine down to earth guy. And with us has been incredibly generous with his time. And um, he really appreciates all of you out there as well. Certainly. You get that sense of like, you feel like he's walking on stage for the first time, every time the way he talks about it. He's forever grateful. So just for fun, I picked up the, uh, the 2015 Dallas show on Setlist FM. We're assuming it's right for a moment. Let's see what we got here. He opens with a matter of trust, pressure. Everybody loves you now. Vienna. And it says that was audience choice over summer Highland falls and shameless. Zanzibar, New York State of Mind, then Shameless, Audience Choice over Sleeping with the Television on, and all for Lena. Ballad of Billy the Kid, quick cover of The Magnificent Seven, Moving Out, The Entertainer, Allentown, My Life, Sometimes a Fantasy, She's Always a Woman, Highway to Hell, Don't Ask Me Why, River of Dreams, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, Piano Man, Still Rock and Roll to Me, You May Be Right, and Only the Good Die Young. Now, I seem to be in Mr. Nebel's camp when it comes to talking or not talking about Glenn Beck. Yeah. I man. would give him a, a tiny, a tiny bit of quarter on this um, because there are a couple of deep, deep cuts on here, but this is, this is pretty stacked. Like, you know what? That's the reason why Billy doesn't sell 
the front rows because you're going to get these guys that if you don't play like greatest hits one and two all the way through, yep. they're going to stare at you dead eyed, you know, because you did shameless. And the rest of us in the back are like, oh, man, I've never heard this one live ever. Right. You know, well, and shoot, yeah. shameless. It was, you know, it was a single, but it wasn't a big hit for Billy. It was Garth Brooks biggest hit. Though even those who don't right. know Billy's version that well probably know Garth's version. Especially in Dallas, yeah. one would imagine. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a pretty cool show. Yeah. Um, I like Matter of Trust as an opener. You know, it goes right in the pressure. You get a little bit of Cold Spring Harbor in there. Yeah. Zanzibar was was pretty um pretty common. Yeah, by then. ever since Carl joined the band, that's been a mainstay. Yeah. Because that is certainly his big feature. I mean, what else are you going to complain about after that? Don't ask me why, or like the entertainer, just because they're not, you know, I mean, the ones everybody everybody knows. But like, you know those songs. Well, Whatever, well, just, man. It just goes <laughs> to show you can't please everybody, because here you have him complaining that he didn't play enough hits, and then I'm sure there's people complaining he didn't play enough deep cuts. So it's like, yeah, at yeah. the end of the day, <laughs> you just got to do what you feel is right for the show and come along for the ride or not. But it's like, you, you can't, right. you can't win. Also bantering too much with the band, like that's kind of half the fun, you know. Like that's what makes the shows home. unique. <laughs> like of, of all these classic Billy videos that we've watched, and some of these bootleg shows that we've watched and listened to, some of my favorite moments are that funny back and forth banter between yeah. everybody, where they're just screwing with each other and having fun. Because to me, if that's going on, then you know they're feeling like they're having a good show. Right. Yeah, they're not just clocking in and out. Yeah. If if that's happening and that vibe is loose and fun, then to me that's a good show. So I got a short one here really quick, uh, that I'll shout out because he's from my neck of the woods. Uh this is from Greg Breslin. Says I'm a real huge Billy Joel fan from the Philadelphia area. Seen Billy Joel fourteen times live since the Glass Houses tour. Love all the anecdotes and details you discussed. Really look forward to listening to all your podcasts. Keep in the faith, Greg. Greg, thanks so much for listening. We appreciate your email. That's awesome. You've you definitely seen a nice range of shows if it's been since Glass Houses. So as we mentioned, our first uh, interview tidbit here is Jesse Javers, Russell Javers' son. He's going to talk about his own songwriting and also his work with the Robert Johnson Foundation. Oh, baby, it's a good and gone. Oh. 
baby's a good and gone My home sweet home Feeling like the fall of Rome Like the fall of Rome I've been writing furiously and uh, have, <laughs> I, I have about an album's worth of material ready now. Um, I put that song out a couple of months ago because it was of the moment. And, um, but, I, you know, I plan to put it back up there properly and release it uh, along with, with a lot of material. So, um, yeah, but I, I've been doing that, uh, which is um, what I'll call sort of just my own work, but I'm also, as it relates to the music industry, I work with the Robert Johnson Blues Foundation as well. So um, mm -hmm. I'm helping uh, Robert's family really reboot the, the foundation and think of new and interesting ways to, to honor uh, the Robert Johnson legacy and uh, you know, across all sort of touch points. My professional background has been entertainment. So I was one of the guys um, way back when helped AMC move that uh, move into uh, becoming a, a premium content brand from a classic movie channel and spent a lot of time at HGTV and Food Network. So I've got a lot of brand building experience. So yeah. I'm trying to use that uh, to something that um, I'm a lot more passionate about than uh, cooking <laughs> eggs and putting up drywall. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Understandable. But, you know, that's great, though, that you, you were able to find something to where you could use that past experience and just have a little more something for you. There'll be, there'll be things to, to talk about in the future with that. But uh, for right now, that's my other touch point uh, back to the music industry. I, I work with uh, Steven Johnson, Robert's grandson and mm -hmm. uh, his brother, Michael. And uh, yeah, they're out of Mississippi and we're, we're working on, on what the foundation is going to look like and, and some other cool things uh, going yeah. forward. How'd you come to work with them? Part of my musical influence has been my father, of course, but then mm -hmm. it has been the blues and, and folk music and Robert Johnson as one of those key figures in, in that mix. And so uh, a couple of years ago, as I was trying to reconnect to the things that I really enjoy doing, I said to myself, you know, I wonder if anyone is is really doing anything with the Robert Johnson brand. And I just I looked around and uh it was around that time, I think, that, that Netflix rebooted this great documentary on Robert Johnson that has John Hammond in it, which is another one of my musical heroes. Uh, and so that's where I saw Stephen. And I, I forgot how I connected with him, but I just connected with him and told him I had some great ideas. And we have uh, become really good friends and uh it's we've got some cool stuff that that's going to come here on the horizon pretty soon it wasn't until probably the last over the last 10 or so years that i really got more hip to blues and folk music just through some artists that i was working with i did a i did a tour with taj mahal that opened up a whole new world oh, of appreciation are you, are you familiar at all with tom paxton a little bit he goes back to the greenwich village days yeah. with dylan and all that stuff and i've been working with him going on 10, 12 years, just kind of running his online presence and helping him with whatever little odds and ends. But he's like early 80s now and still performing, writing, touring, you name it. He's busier than he's ever been. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, that scene was uh, was so cool, um, you know, obviously well before my time. But 
it's it, it's really it's really something i and that, that's part of the void i think it, that there is with dare i venture into these waters but um with modern music you know we're living in these unbelievably tumultuous times and where are the you know where are the songs about that what's <laughs> happening nobody's singing about it and they should be um and they did in the 60s and for whatever reasons they're not now um mm-hmm. so that's something that i <laughs> i try and address in, in in my music i almost wonder is you know if it's because of the climate today if people were are more afraid of backlash than the than what they feel they need to get out there yeah it's true and uh, you know there there very well might be some some apprehension in doing so. It, it is a different day. Uh, it's even a different day since the end of last year in, in many ways. But regardless of what uh, your political uh, views are, there, there's a lot of topics to cover. Uh, so I think people should be singing. What is it about Robert Johnson? Do you think that's really stood the test of time? Is it partially just that lore of there's like one or two photos of them, just a handful of songs that got released? Uh, or is that combined with um, just what he was doing? Was that powerful and unique? I think the lore certainly added to his mystique, but it's all in his music. Um, I mean, his guitar playing style is so interesting. It's it's incredibly uh, rhythmic, but also very technical um, you know, he, he sort of plays like a piano. Uh, you've got the bass note going while you're doing a, a, a riff on the, with your other fingers. It's, it's a very syncopated way of playing that, frankly, not many people can do. Um, so mm. you've got that on top of the subject matter that he sang about and just the way in which he sang. It had a very haunting, um, just presence to it and even uh, what i understand uh, during his his own time um it, it wasn't of course people in posterity came to to respect his music but he was very popular in mississippi back in the day um mm-hmm. so it was uh, a real tragedy he he died at 27 um you know people look back at that 27 club right. he was the first uh, he was poisoned by a jealous uh, husband. He he had a definitely had a uh, reputation for enjoying the the drink and and the women. And uh, there was <laughs> not this uncommon one, in music. Not uncommon <laughs> at all. Um, yeah. So uh, a jealous husband laced his uh, whiskey with with something, and it, a couple days later, it, it killed him. So very tragic but um that's robert johnson do you think that there'll be relevance for robert johnson today it sounds like a horrible question but i think as we see you know just just how the landscape of even the instruments that people are using now are so different you know the guitar is is unfortunately almost out of fashion i think i think you know obviously synthesizers and sampling is you know taking front and center at least in pop music do you feel like there's there's some um specific relevance or things that young musicians today could be taken from robert johnson or some old folk blues specifically 
Absolutely. I think of all times, maybe since the 60s, now is where we might be best poised to see a resurgence, a, a bigger resurgence in the blues. You know, just think about some of the bands that are that have been really popular, um, sort of in that folk Americana thing. You know, it's all they're all second cousins of each other. So right. if that can make it mm-hmm. mainstream again, certainly I think the blues can. Um, I've also been involved with uh, another organization called Overall Junction, and this was uh, started as a virtual venue for blues musicians all over the world. It popped up during the pandemic, um, hosted by a couple of really great uh, young blues musicians. And through that, I've seen just some absolutely amazing talent uh, that's out there. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's still a little difficult for people to get out and play in person now. But it, it is right there, just under the surface, ready, ready to emerge again. I was speaking to a, a harmonica player years ago. He pointed out, it's like, yeah, every 15, 20 years, the blues just comes back. Came back in the 60s, came back in the 80s, came back a little in the late 90s. Hopefully your clock is right and we'll see it <laughs> pop back up now. <laughs> I, I hope it does, yeah. But yeah. Uh, I know it will. Mainstream music, so to speak, it's become so overprocessed and so predictable and so perfect where you know everything's to a grid. Everything's just so that... I almost feel that there's going to be a bit of a backlash against it to get back to more, you know, the feeling of people making music and more about more about the vibe and more about the song and less about the perfect production. Absolutely. And that's what I think is so cool about those early recordings, um, you know, especially the, the blues guys, which for the most part, they were solo musicians and everything was recorded live. I mean, of course, it was the 30s, but um and you know even some of the later blues but yeah i mean imperfections is always part of it some of my favorite uh stuff isn't you know it doesn't sound processed you know you feel a little bit of the room you feel what what you get this sense of of the space in which they're they're playing in as well and um yeah i i think and, and hope that that is a style that that comes back into play um you know, you get up and you play in front of people. If you miss something, you you got to keep going on. Um, you know, <laughs> nobody's ever perfect. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Jesse. You've been so cool to us. And he and I connected on Facebook a few months back. And, you know, I heard some stories about uh, Jesse from Russell over the years. And it was always proud Papa stuff. of like, oh, you got to hear my son, Jesse. Great guitar player, great singer. I, I love that, you know, Jesse is singing and writing and, that his career is also connected to the music industry now. Why don't we move on to some cutting room conversation uh, with Liberty. As I've mentioned before, I've known Liberty for about 20 years now. And anytime he and I get on the phone or get on Zoom, it's like, you know, catching up with an old friend. I don't know if you're familiar with this singer-songwriter, this guy named Butch Walker. He's a fantastic producer. He's He's been in the business 30 plus years, was in a hair band in the 80s, like had a hit in an alternative band in the 90s. And he's been a solo artist for the last 20 years, but he also produces. He's done like Taylor Swift, Avril Lavigne. I mean, you name it under the sun. He can write and produce for these artists that allows him to fully fund what he loves. And he doesn't have to worry about, you know, breaking the bank as a solo yeah. artist. 
Well, right now it's the same thing for me with with uh, with the Lords of Fifty Second Street. You know that that's the money making band where the Slim Kings. <laughs> it's like that's the passion project. Yeah, yeah, not that the Lords aren't, but it's allowing you to not have to worry about it so much with the Slim Kings. Right, and I love you know playing with the Lords. It's like <laughs> it's like we being twenty seven all over again. It's unbelievable. Fortunately, I've been able to you know see a couple of your shows so far and. The joy that the th- three of you especially are having playing those songs now, it's, it's so fun to see. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's like when Billy writes in the beginning of the book, we were, we were family, you know, mm-hmm. and we, uh, we left it all on the stage. Yeah. That's what we did. And, you know, we, we continue to do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we got together the first time, it was the same jokes. It was like there was no gap of time in between yeah. when, we, when we last played. It's it funny great. you mentioned that, too, because I remember uh, in our Florida days, you hadn't seen Russ in a while. I remember he was coming to town for like a convention or something. I remember you mentioned that you guys hadn't seen each other in a bit. And I'm like, okay, I got to get the two of you in a room. It's been too long. <laughs> and I remember the three of us sitting down and it was like, you two just jumped right in like no time had passed. It was, I was just like, I'm just going to sit back and watch you go. You know, it's funny. I did the same thing with Billy too. When I started to email back and forth and we still do the same silly jokes, you know? It's great that you can, you know, you've been able to pick that back up with him as well. Oh, yeah. Well, that whole thing, you know, it was like when, when the when the Lords of 52nd Street, uh, you know, me and Russell and Doug, along with Doug Stegmaier, got inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame. Um, I, I wasn't going to go. I was still bitter about that whole thing. But when somebody said, why don't the Lords get back together? You know, why don't you guys get back together and start playing? Well, reacquainting uh, myself with the songs was a thrill because I never really listened to them. You know, once you record them, you don't listen to them. Anymore, right. You know? Yeah. And uh, so listening to them, I really learned to appreciate them. And I, and I saw uh, what great players were on those records, you mm-hmm. know, and, and the arrangements and stuff like that and how great Billy was as a writer, you know? So now I had, I had the songs back that I, that I was falling in love with again. And I yeah. had the three guys back again. Yeah. You know, all I needed was the one guy. Right. Know? And did, you know, did that help give you the separation from like the pain that you had been going through, being able to rediscover the music and what you originally loved about it? Oh, yeah, because I used to, you know, um, I didn't understand tribute bands. I didn't understand why people liked the band so much. Like, you know, I don't get it, you know, Uh, but then, you know, listening again. And, you know, when I really discovered it, I um I went to see uh, Danny Seraphine's Chicago. Uh, it's called the the um, um, California Transit Authority CTA. Same thing, you know? right? And and I saw them at the cutting room in, in Manhattan, and uh, I was I was singing every song like, oh, I love this song. Oh, I remember this song. Oh, I had a girlfriend. She gave me this forty five. Oh, I, you know all that kind of stuff. And somebody leaned over to me and said, "You see the way you're reacting to this band." That's how people react to when the Lord's play. It's the yeah. same thing. I, it clicked. It was like, ah, oh, I get it now. You know, everybody asks, what was it like? Did you know that you ha- were going to make uh, number one records when you were recording those songs? No, we didn't know that. I think anyone who says they know is a liar because you really don't know. I mean, there's no. so many variables <laughs> that you, right. can't, you really can't predict it. Right. Yeah. You just can't, you know. So you have fun. We were just a bunch of friends playing in the studio. I always kind of laugh at that bad story that always got out there that where Billy said that you hated reggae, which I knew was further furthest from the truth. Right. You guys loved it. 
I loved it. My 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 beef there was what was that that it, it, we shouldn't sound like we come from Jamaica because the Long Island Railroad that's that that's about the closest to Jamaica we've exactly. ever been. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, speaking of playing with different bass players, you know, after Doug left, did you find that you know challenging with as the different bass players would come along in the in the Billy Band? Skylar was the first one. Skylar Deal yep. that came in and. Because it was going to be such a big change, I kind of like slid into it as like, okay, we're going to we're changing now. We're, right. we're we're changing. I'm not going to fight this. We're going to change, and we're going to see what it what it comes out like. I'm not going to go in there going like, ah, Doug's gone. Um, this is going to stink. Get this guy. Who's this guy, Skylar? No, it wasn't like that. It was like, okay, this is something. This new. is going to be a, a new thing. We're opening a new chapter here. Okay, but then um, on the following tours. When Skyler left to go with Michael Bolton and we were going on tour, uh, I remember getting the call from T-Bone Walk. And yeah. he said, he said, uh, Lib, uh, um, what's the chances of me getting the, the gig? And, and Billy always said that it was up to me to pick the bass player, you know? So I said, what, you really want it? He goes, yeah, I want it back. <laughs> you know, okay. Because at the time, he was doing Saturday Night Live. Now, the union scale, I think, was only like $1,000 for the players on Saturday Night Live to do the show. They only did 30 shows a, a year. So oh, he had to fill in somehow. And that's a lot of work for what they're doing, for, you know, for what they're doing. A getting. lot of work. A lot yeah. of this, like four days of rehearsal and all this other stuff. But anyway, um, so yeah, he, he loved the gig. He hated Billy's management, hated them. That was the biggest problem there. So he left. And then David Santos, I got David Santos in because I had been playing with David Santos with the all-star band. Uh, that okay. I was, playing I was with the trying Northwest to think band. how you two were connected. Okay. Remember that? Now, I, I know you now. By this time, I right. know we're, we're friends. Yeah. And uh, that was the connection. And David had it easy because his mother lived in Tampa. So he would drive over to my house and we would rehearse the Billy songs, just me and him. Yeah. You know, and his first audition was um, the VH1 Behind the Music. Where we did this the concert and oh yeah Boston. that storytellers thing yeah yeah yes that was it and uh, that was his first like audition the first time he played with us you know and he was great David David was really good he's a great bass player you know he's doing so much now his mistake was he wanted to get in on this TV show because at the time now all the musicians were getting in his TV shows and playing you know um, like the Roots are doing now and stuff like that. And, mm -hmm. and there was this one show and he had to go for the second audition. And it was a time that we had to play with Billy. That's when Andy Shasan came in. He was a friend of Knowles from Australia. Right. You know, another good bass player, but um, oh, sure. mm -hmm. not as aggressive as the other guys. You know, yeah, yeah. Doug, Doug was very aggressive. Mm -hmm. T-Bone was musically as good as, as good as Doug. You know, like he he knew his instrument. Oh yeah, his his number one uh, instrument was the accordion, T Bone. He, that was his main instrument. <laughs> you know, you know. I I think there were instances, especially on that River of Dreams tour, where he would play accordion in yeah. the songs that called for it, and it was so nice on that run to have like actual live accordion on stage and not just a keyboard patch. Right, right. It really was nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. He was a great mu musician. Great musician. Yeah. 
Uh, but um, hated Billy's management. <laughs> yeah, we were like the Indians, and they were the United States government. They promised us the world, and we're like, well. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. Uh, and, and then Andy, Andy was good. He was there. Yeah. But, you know, um, and uh, that, that was it. And yeah, I, I was done. <laughs> and then you were gone and who knows <laughs> i was done and then uh you know didn't play for a while just did like studio work and the first one i hooked up with was uh but was always talking to russell and yeah. and uh not so much richie until i moved back to brooklyn okay richie i would talk to when, when doug died or talk to richie uh there was another time when me and richie you know were communicating back and forth but uh, russell uh always Russell was always there, you know, and uh, yeah. when he was making the toys in, in, uh, in uh, China, he, yep. he was living in China for a while. We found out, I went over there to do a clinic at this uh, music fair mm -hmm. and he was at a toy fair at the time. We were one building away from each other and didn't know it. No kidding. All the way across the world. But uh, yeah, he's always been there. We, and we used to talk, you know, uh, we're getting older, so if anything goes wrong with one of us, it's like, like oh, how to go yeah, this happened to you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got my oil changed, and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and, and Suzanne, you know, of course, I've known Suzanne for years, yeah, we've always, always been in touch, you know, so it's great playing with the Lords now because we're all there, yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's comedy, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting dynamic because it's the three of you, and then you know, the, the rest of the band that got put together, how, you know, how has that been playing, you know, playing these songs with those new guys? Malcolm, the bass player, mm -hmm. Malcolm McGoal. In the beginning, I, I was like, I don't, I don't know about this guy, but we eventually caught on and, and really tight now. And I, and I understand when you first go and play with somebody, especially at the caliber of Richie Canada or something like that, you know, or what I have done with my career and stuff like that. You, you get a little nervous and you're still playing your style. Well, Malcolm had to learn Doug's parts. Right. You know, note for note, when he found out that, that he was playing with me, he had to, has to learn those parts. So he, he, he's great now. Malcolm, I can play anytime with Malcolm. And, and you know, we always worry that, um, you, you know, there'd be dates that they can't make some of the guys because, you know, they have to work. Right. So, right. It's not everyone's only gig. Yeah. Right. Right. So um, I just so, always hope that Malcolm will be there. You know, uh, Doug, the other keyboard player, the, the electronic keyboard player, is a mm -hmm. great guy. Just a yeah. great guy. And he's, a, he's also a great guitar player, Doug. Yeah, oh, no really good. You've, yeah. you've heard his stuff. Uh, I posted some of his stuff oh, on my, that's my right. page. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he plays and sings. Yeah. And um, Dennis is great. You know, Dennis was in uh, Moving Out. He did the Moving Out on Broadway. Yeah. And, and, the chair was Dave uh, Clark's, he, Billy's chair. Right. The Billy chair. And D Dave was great. Dave does a lot of other stuff also. So Dave um, split. And now we have a new guy. Uh, Dan Orlando is his name. Okay. He's a, young, he's a younger guy. And he sounds more like the 70s Billy. Oh, cool. Sing, we still do the songs in the, in the key of the album. And he hits every note like it's not a problem. Wow. You know, yeah. Okay. So, so it's really good. I mean, uh, as far as the camaraderie goes, of course, there's the three of us. Yeah. And, you know, Malcolm, we love Malcolm. We, we love the guys in the band. Oh, yeah. 
you know, so it's great. Andy is our fearless leader. Andy Gilmartin. He's great. Who, who thinks we're all crazy for doing what we're doing. You know, like we're all pain in the asses. Just be and like, then, well, it's your fault. Right. Andy would love us one day and then hate us the next, you know. Right. Well, that's about, that, that's, then you're good. That's how it should be. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's management, you know. Exactly. Yeah. You know, hey, Andy, I want to, why don't we go play in uh, China somewhere? What do you want to do that for? It's so stupid. What do you want to, you know, you're not going to make the money of it. Okay, we won't go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he was smart during the pandemic because a lot of bands, bands have a set price that, that they, they act for. A lot of bands lowered their price way down just so they could do gigs, you know, at half houses and stuff like that. Yeah. But Andy said, no, let's hold out and we'll keep our price. You know, it'll eventually come around again. And I think he was smart doing that, you know, keeping yeah. us above the water, you know. That is a good move because honestly, it's. I think had had you guys dropped, right. it would have been harder to get back. Right. Exactly. To that level. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Billy knew it because he said on on Glass Houses, I want that band that's playing live to play with me. All everybody in the studio, nobody overdubs. There's yep. no overdubs on the on the uh, on the Glass Houses album. It's just us, the same guys that you saw yeah. on the stage. Those songs translated so well live yeah. because of that reason. We were like playing them live in the studio. You know, maybe you'd open up Shakers or something like that on your maybe writers, you know, mm -hmm. stuff like that. That's the one thing I noticed in that era, um, 79 to 81, is especially when you guys would play something from that album. I'm like, well, yeah, there's the record. Like it just <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. you know, and it was at the time too where like David and Russell's guitar tones were kind of dialed into that glass house's sound. So even right. more so, it sounded, it sounded so faithful to that to that album live, just because it was the five of you in there. And then we uh, Richie leaves because he has so much else to do. He's got to make a decision now. And yeah. we do Nylon Curtain, which still has the same band, but not a whole lot of people are overdubbing on it. Just maybe at the end of, of uh, the refrain of Allentown. Oh right, I think what's his name plays uh, Michael Brecker or something plays. Yeah, I think there's I a. Know clarinet or something near the end there a saxophone yeah yeah otherwise it's just that band again you know but you know between uh glass houses and the nylon curtain those certainly seem like very different studio experiences between the two. Oh, they were glass houses was like because it was still in a and r studios the ones we did the stranger and the 52nd street in so we're really familiar with that yeah but, um and it was we were still it was still a lot of fun I mean, we start. They started to um, push us out of the A and R during the the recording of Nylon Curtain. We were recording in a, in, a, in this church in New York that was converted into a studio. We were recording uh, in a bunch of different studios, and Billy had his motorcycle accident in the middle of it. That's right. That really took you know. I mean, that album took a year to do because of his motorcycle accident. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Where the other ones, I mean, which, what's that one? Uh, uh, Innocent Man it was, it was uh, what, four weeks, six weeks to make the basic tracks. That was it. Done. Wow. That's incredibly fast. I didn't know it was that fast. And he's writing the songs in the studio well, yeah. with us there. You know, he's not, uh, not right. He didn't have them all written. And he comes in and he goes, OK, we're going to do this one. We're going to do that one. No, he comes in with two songs and the rest are written in the studio. It, it seems it seems like being with you guys in there just jamming on things would that would kind of spark him to write more as you guys were doing this. Oh, yeah. 
It's like you, you ask me a question and I answer it. Well, I'm answering it. You're going like, oh, yeah. And, and you go to the next one because of the answer that I just gave you. Right. The a lot of that. Was, that's, yeah, a lot of that. A lot of that. It seems like Phil was able to strike that balance with you guys, though. Oh, knew, yeah. Knew when to let you guys just go crazy, yeah. but also knew when to wrangle it in and be like, all right, time to go. Yeah, time to work. Time to get yeah. it done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he used to sit there and let us let us bang out the song, whatever, for an hour. Just yeah, like try, let's try this. You can hear it on the microphone. So let's try this. Hey, Liv, try this. Hey, hey, uh, David, try this. Oh, then then <laughs> hit the talkback button. You hear the click, and you go, okay. So you guys want to know how the song should really go? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's nothing worse than being in the studio is finishing a take and there being nothing in your headphones, yeah. like no one's saying anything, you know? So right. yeah. the fact that he could, he could, you know, cut that tension real quick and, you know, oh, light, God, lighten yeah. it. Yeah. We went in, we were in with Karen Carpenter, you know, Russell was in on that. You yeah. Know, he wrote two, two or three of the songs that Karen did. And uh, <laughs> I remember she said, uh, we were doing a song called make believe it's, you make believe it's your first time and I'll make believe it's mine. That's the line she's singing, right? It's a beautiful mm-hmm. ballad. And for some reason we stopped and I said, Karen, you, you, you know what you should be? You should say, make believe it's your first time and I'll guarantee it's mine. <laughs> Everybody could not stop laughing. Not stop laughing. <laughs> Phil was even laughing in the control room. <laughs> we had to stop the session. Couldn't stop laughing. Uh, you know? Yeah, and uh, we, uh, Russ needs to tell you the story about when when uh, Phil was called out for a phone call, and it was it was you know such a long time before he came back. And I'm going in the studio, and on the microphone, I'm going like, we're trying to think of what happened to this person. You know, why is Phil still out there? Or, right. You know, maybe she ate something bad. Maybe. And I'm going, oh, maybe she jumped out the window, and I make his noise. It's like ah! <sighs> on the microphone and stuff like that. And Phil comes back in and he says, and we said, well, what happened? What took you so long? Uh, my friend committed suicide. He jumped out a window or something. <laughs> we just started laughing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's so terrible. But I mean, the circumstances of you guys just riffing off of that. Oh my gosh. Uh, then we explained it to Phil and he started laughing too. <laughs> That's what was great about making those records. I mean, it was like, you know, Billy was strict to like, Okay, we're going to start at noon, and if we don't get something by eight, we're going home. You know, we're going to do eight to twelve to eight. That's the shift we're going to do, just like a regular working. We're coming yeah. to a regular job. You know, I mean, is we that, played live. Is that typically uh, when you would guys would record during the day like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never at night. Yeah. If if we were really close to getting something, we would go longer. Sure. But you know, if it was like okay, we didn't get anything. Enough that's for today. It, come back tomorrow. Yeah. You know, uh, as a matter of fact, we, he, he was so normal in the work schedule that we used to sing as we were walking up to the stage at the live shows. We would sing hi ho, hi ho, it's <laughs> off to work we go. Yeah. <laughs> like that was our job. We couldn't, can you believe it? That that was our job. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. That definitely doesn't suck. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't suck. Mm. It sucks sometimes, but, well, uh, you know. Not every night but, is going to be amazing, but that's like that with any job. But. 
Yeah, yeah. Your good nights are better than a lot of uh, some others. Our <laughs> <laughs> bad nights are better than a lot of other good nights. That's a good point. Now, yeah. you know, was was there a moment when you knew that things were going to change within the band when, you know, Russell and Doug weren't going to continue on? Well, I knew that Doug was having a substance problem, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, Doug always said that that the, the ATM machine was the downfall of Doug Stegmaier because... You could always get $100 and pull it out of your bank account in an ATM machine. And, you know, so that was really bad. And I remember walking out of my room once, being one of the last ones to go down to the bus or to get on the get to the plane. And I saw the, the cleaning lady clean out Doug's room, and there was like a, a whole six-pack of beer on the room service tray. So I knew he was drinking alone. And um, during the bridge... When he didn't make it a few times because he had to go into the hospital, his pancreas was getting swollen and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it was like Billy was, he's had it, you know, and Doug was getting heavy. And um, so when he was cut, the only reason why Russell got cut was because it was convenient. Uh, Doug's going, well, I can get rid of, you know, Russell didn't go to. It's like the excuse like, all right, now I'm going to revamp. I'm going to revamp. So uh, I'm getting rid of Doug. I might as well clean, clean house and get new guys. Yeah. You know, like when Richie left, no slag on Mark Rivera, or Dave LeBolt, but you know, they had to replace Richie with two people. Yeah. It took two people to replace Richie. Richie was not only the greatest sax player, but he was also the utility man. I mean, he played the accordion on piano man or, or, or scenes or whatever. Yeah. He had that stupid little electronic thing called Elka. Oh Yeah. <laughs> in front on top of the Hammond organ. He played the Hammond organ. Yep. He played the flute. He played the sax. He played the clarinet. He played everything, you know. He was doing harmonica back then. Yeah. 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 I, I think, you know, I always liken like it to like baseball, like how valuable a utility player is. It's like to be able to have one guy, obviously it excels, you know, obviously organ and sax were the meat of what he did. But right. like, yeah, I could do this. I could pick up this part. I could sing this part. I could play whatever on this. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. 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 Two guys to, to replace them. I can remember sitting in a studio and I could not figure out what to play on set de trois. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm trying everything. And I can see Russell doing the same thing that Phil Ramon did on Just The Way You Are, playing a little something in an air drums. And I'm thinking like, that could be cool, you know? Yeah. But that's the way that the band was. I, I could tell David Brown, why don't you try this? Or, you know... Uh, I remember telling Richie with the play in stiletto on the organ, bop, 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 you know, just very percussive, you know, and, yeah. and, and things like that. And, 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 you know, Richie telling me like, what do you hear? Good. Only good. I young. You're good. You're going to, it's good. You're going to drive me crazy. You know, stuff like that. You know, we did that for each other. That speaks to the relationship you had with each, with each other. One things weren't precious and couldn't, you know, nothing was untouchable. And, you were all comfortable enough with each other that to where those suggestions could be made and no one's going to get hurt. We all knew our parts. We all knew what we did. You know, it's funny. Uh, the sessions, you know, the sessions, the thing I do yeah. with Jules and Dom and all them. They just interviewed my daughter, Tori. And she said, Dom said, well, you know, being an actor and being in a, in a series is kind of like being in a band, isn't it? And Tori said, the only difference between being in a band and being an actor in a series with a bunch of people is that everybody in the series wants to be the lead singer. <laughs> right. In a band, everybody knows their spot. 
Ah, uh, Liberty, thanks again, man. You've been so great to us. And anytime we've reached out, you've been more than happy to get on the phone or hop on a Zoom and chat with us and share so many amazing stories. Interested to see what we come up with next. <laughs> yeah, I just think we're always thinking of different ways to do things and, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I'm thrilled with how a lot of the stuff we did this year came out. And I don't mind saying that because... You know the feedback and the and the and the and the listenership we've gotten this year has been astounding and humbling. And you know when we started, we were getting maybe 50 downloads a week. You know when something came out or something like that, and it's like gone up exponentially uh, this year. And we were we were a little worried because we didn't know it was going to happen when the world opened back up. You know if people were just going to you know if we were going to be the toy that got thrown in the closet. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's been amazing. It's been like so much work, but it's it's been worth it to to see how much people have enjoyed it, you know, to be able to tell the band member stories, to be able to fill in these gaps in the history, things like that. Obviously, get some of this on the record and tell these stories, but also a way to show, you know, everybody who's been involved in the Billy Joel band and the Billy Joel camp, you know, how much we, we appreciate what they do from Mike Del Judas to Russell Javers and everybody in between every era of the band. And, you know, we're also, you know, we, we've got a couple of exciting things already on tap for, for next year. You know, we're, we're going to be talking with Edward O'Dowd, who's been Billy's art director for a decade, mm -hmm. you know, Ernesto uh, Juan, who is working on the, what sounds to be incredible, the Havana jam. Oh yeah. Documentary. Yeah. And so there are so many fascinating people who have been touched by Billy's music or Billy's work in all these different ways. And we've got a lot of really cool stories coming up and I'm just very grateful to be the hub where we can gather all these. Yeah. It's been amazing. So thank you to all our guests. I'd say also thank you to Andy Gilmartin manager for the Lords of 52nd street for helping out. Yeah, absolutely. Andy's an old friend. And, and thanks also to Gretchen Brennison at Sony music. We met her, you know, via email uh, late in the year as the vinyl collection volume one was coming out and she was instrumental in, uh, you know, making sure we had a copy that we could open and review, connecting us with Edward O'Dowd so we can talk to him about the uh, the art direction on this project and others. And with that in mind, you know, once again, we thank you all, too. Thank you for, for chiming in. Thank you for giving us your anecdotes, your stories about, uh, you know, your, your experiences meeting Billy, meeting the band, discovering the music, going to all those concerts. And keep them up. We love reading them. Uh, send them on over. Podcast at gmail.com or find us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Your reviews and your ratings have been instrumental in helping tell the, the Spotify and Apple algorithms that we are something worth checking out. So uh, if, uh, if you haven't gotten around to that, it's, it's something that takes two seconds and helps us go a long way. If you could leave that five-star rating or positive review, it really helps us a lot. And you know, you're the reason why we're growing. You sharing a post, you telling a friend about it. You're the reason why we're continuing to do what we do. Otherwise, we're just two Billy Joel fans <laughs> geeking out over the music we love. <laughs> so thanks a lot. And we'll see you next year. We will see you in 2022. Thanks, guys. Six, five.
cup of kindness yet for all It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 